a platform for an in-depth look in economic matters with leaders and decision makers. This is BizTalk. The Earth is getting hotter, yet reality is cold. Hurricanes, floods, wildfires. As humans face ever ferocious natural disasters, the consequences of climate change are becoming all too clear. Millions of climate activists marched in the streets. What should politicians do other than offer hollow platitudes? The climate problem is like COVID times a thousand. We're all in it together. How can folks aid change? There's still not enough voters who make it harder for polluting industries. Nations are transitioning to renewable resources. But the question is, are renewables ready? You can't just snap your fingers and say, oh, we can go 100% renewable. We presently need some better energy storage technology. The clock is ticking and actions must be taken. In this life or death crisis, how can we cut greenhouse gas emissions? Only on BizTalk. Hello and welcome to this edition of BizTalk. I'm Guan Xing. The year of 2021 may be remembered as our last best chance to save the planet. And scientists warn that the window of time is closing fast to avoid the worst effects of climate change. To better understand where we are now and what can be done in a race towards zero emissions, we are very pleased to be joined by Professor Stephen Chu from Stanford University. He's a Nobel Prize laureate in physics and also the 12th United States Secretary of Energy. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Professor Chu. Glad to be here. Sixth director of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, Nobel Prize laureate in physics in 1997, Secretary of Energy in the Obama administration for four years. There are just too many ways to start with Stephen Chu. Dr. Chu is now at vanguard of urging governments and citizens to address climate change. Time is ticking, he warned, and something has to happen. Before we get down to the questions, I'd like to start with a bit about you. Could you share with us a little bit about what motivated you to devote your research to climate change related areas after being so successful at physics? I think it started around the year 2000, maybe a little bit before. Just as a private citizen, I began to read what scientists, climate scientists were saying. I was, of course, a skeptical scientist. And so I said, well, is it really true? And so I just began to read about it, read about in the literature. And the more I read about it, the more I thought that perhaps it is true. And as this is around year 2000, but in the following years, I felt there was mounting evidence that even if 100% was not true, even if half of it was true or a quarter of it was true, that the risk would be so large that you didn't want to really gamble. And so I began to talk about it. After I began to talk about it, I said, well, if just talk is cheap, am I going to do anything about it? And, and so that's when they were trying to attract me to become a director of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. If I'm not willing to become the director and try to convince scientists to think about climate change and think about technical solutions, why should I be talking about anything? So it's, that's what started the journey. And I went there with the intent of trying to inspire scientists, both young and old, to think about what science, what technology can be done to give us better solutions. 
Then President-elect Obama asked me to become Secretary of Energy. So it's a journey of more than 20 years. How do you think about the progress so far? Because some people are saying we're still doing too little, too late. Is there a sense of frustration with you? Yes, I am very frustrated. Uh, the good news is, since that time, the lots of technologies have gotten much better. Solar, wind power, they were coming down remarkably, but batteries especially. Uh, we at Lawrence Berkeley Lab began to do look at improving solar power. We began to look at using biology as part of the solution. It has to be part of the solution because the food we eat, the energy we spend in raising food and the greenhouse gas emissions from animals we eat, from the food we grow, is actually more greenhouse gas emissions than all of electricity generation around the world. Food production is more greenhouse gas emissions than electricity generation. And so we started during this path of, of, of trying to look at all the areas where we might have expertise. And so that was a journey that started in 2004. Did you realize that food systems accounted for more than one-third of global greenhouse gas emissions? Studies show the huge impact of our meals on climate change. In addition, animal-based food emits about twice as much carbon dioxide as plant-based foods. It is the largest carbon dioxide emitter in the food system and accounts for 57% of the total emissions. The production of meat, poultry, and dairy products and crops used to feed livestock are all contributors. There were four years that the United States is out of the Paris Agreement, and at this year's COP26, Queen Elizabeth urged world leaders to rise above politics at the moment. Do you think it's possible? Yes, it is possible. President Trump got elected. He pulled out of the agreement. And so despite the technical improvements, the abilities you know, of, of electric vehicles, of solar, of wind, and all of these other things, we were set back. Despite the fact that to the majority of Americans, the climate change is very real. Most of them accept the fact that it is largely caused by humans and it is, poses a huge threat. There's still not enough voters saying, this is so important to us. We want you as our senators, our representatives to pass strong legislation to help make the transition, to give help to clean industries and, and to make it harder for polluting industries to continue both financially and with taxes and with regulations. In the end, in the United States, uh, the Congress has to pass the laws and decide what to do. What you have started 20 years ago proved to be very meaningful nowadays, especially this year we're seeing more and more extreme weathers around the world and more people are suffering from climate crisis. What do you think about uh, the issue of energy poverty? Will the climate crisis exacerbate the gap between the inequality between the rich countries and the poor countries? What can be done for them? The rich countries got rich uh, because they were in the Industrial Revolution first for several hundred years. So most of the problem of CO2 today is the result of the history of the more developed countries, uh, Europe and the United States. It's rapidly changing because as the develop, developing countries, China, India, and others come up, they have a, the vast majority of the people 
and they want their economies to grow. They want prosperity for their people. The question is, how do you don't slow up the rise in prosperity, but do it in a different way so that you, you don't follow in the footsteps of what happened 50 and 100 and 200 years ago with uh, Europe and the United States? Can you leapfrog past fossil fuel generation? And solar is very inexpensive now, but you need solar plus energy storage. And can you have that localized? Can you have that localized apartment buildings, houses, things like that? Well, in cities, it's very difficult because you need a lot of space. But it's possible, but we don't have the energy storage part yet. The solar power has done miraculous things, you know, drop to just 5% or less of what it used to be 20 years ago. It is incomplete, and we're going to see the same for electric vehicles. The batteries will become less and less expensive. I predict within 10 years at the most, owning an electric vehicle and operating an electric vehicle will be less costly than owning and operating an internal combustion engine car. You want the price to be comparable, but the 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 energy costs will be far less. And of course, it's so much easier to solve the pollution problem because when you generate electricity, there are many more clean ways of doing it. When you have an internal combustion engine car and the exhaust that come out of the exhaust of a car, of a truck, is much harder to control. And so pollution, well, local pollution, the PM 2.5, that is very unhealthy air that's killing people around the world, that can be avoided with electric vehicles. And so that's another driver for this. And I'm very excited about the progress in batteries, but we need governments to encourage it, to push it faster. Coming up next, what is Professor Chu's advice on China's energy reform? You have lots of wind and solar, but you don't throw that energy away. So how do you coordinate the system? This year, factories in China's manufacturing hubs are subject to electricity rationing, but is there a better option? They work on how to store the energy to use it more efficiently so you don't have to turn off the factories and things. Trying to bounce back from COVID, the world has run headlong into an energy crisis. From the United States, Texas suffering darkness and freezing weather in February to China struggling to secure winter power in face of shortages in October, Europe is experiencing a worsening situation with energy prices setting new records due to surging demand and short supply. Transitioning to cleaner energy sources is clearly necessary to combat climate change. But how feasible is a world powered 100% by renewable energy? Professor Chu, help us understand the energy crisis this year. Some attribute it to the underinvestment of traditional energy sources. Will it compromise global efforts to fight climate change? It's complicated, especially after COVID and the economy is coming back. Some people optimistically, some people really care about the environment, say we don't really need fossil fuel and we can just go to renewable. But, you know, in 10 or 20 years, we have to do this, 20 or 30 years. By 2050, I think it's possible, but it takes time to make the transition. And right now in 2021, going to 2022, we still have a large dependency on fossil fuels because we don't have energy storage. So you can put in all the solar and wind you want, but when this 
sun doesn't shine, when the wind doesn't blow, you need another source of energy. You can't turn off the factories. You can't turn off the lights. And so until you have very inexpensive chemical storage or pump water storage or any other kind of storage, you have to then go back to two things, either fossil fuel or nuclear power. And I think nuclear power will have to be an essential part of the future. Of course, you want to make nuclear power safer and safer and safer. But if you use fossil fuel, then you have to capture the carbon. And that has its own difficulties. So this is the dilemma we're in. It's going to take time to make this transition. But we have to make it as quickly as possible. But you can't just snap your fingers and say, oh, we can go 100% renewable. It will, even to get to 50, 60, 70% renewable, we presently need some better energy storage technologies. Renewables are becoming cheaper, but for them to truly compete with fossil fuels, we must find a better way to store energy. Hundreds of companies are working on scaling up and manufacturing new energy storage technology. Bloomberg New Energy Finance forecasts that the global energy storage market will double six times between 2017 and 2030. During that time, an estimated $103 billion will be invested in energy storage. How will it make our energy system more resilient in the future uh, to prevent such shocks such as uh, power outages? Ideally, you want some type of energy storage which you can store for weeks or months, very inexpensively. Uh, because there will time, you know, in the United States, uh, in very good wind size, sometimes the wind stops going for a week, maybe even two, or you can have very bad weather. And so how do you store energy for just not four hours or overnight, but a week becomes a real issue. If you think of a battery, if you get to use the battery every day, you can, you can have a return on your investment of the battery. If you get to use the battery once a month, it has to be much cheaper. So that's why the cost of energy storage becomes crucial. And right now, we do not know how to make batteries inexpensive enough. You can really think of storing for a week, let alone a month, uh, but we have to. And so again, it becomes technology. Now, most people don't want their energy prices to double or triple. And that's the other thing. People suffer from their home bills, from transportation, and the industry suffers. If energy costs so much and it, there's an economic downturn, that will also be very bad. So these are some of the things that are very important. And when you go in and visit cities where you have polluted air, it's terrible. You know, older people have real health problems, young children have asthma, and people are dying prematurely. So there, at some point, you say it's that important for us to have clean air. It's that important for us to have clean water. It's going to make things a little more expensive. With climate change, there's even more because the worst effects will be occurring for our children and grandchildren. For people my age, it doesn't matter that much. But people are going to live 20, 30, 40 years. It's going to really matter. And what's been surprising, as you mentioned, in the last one, two, three, four years, we see huge, terrible things happening to weather, huge floods, droughts, forest fires. And people see with their own eyes. And what I see with my own eyes, I didn't actually expect to see. 
while I was alive. These things I thought were going to occur 20 years from today. And so that makes everything much more scary that the predictions were not pessimistic enough of 20 years ago. Professor Chu, what's your observation of China's energy reform? Well, I think China's trying hard, but they also don't want to slow down the economy. But one of the things I'm trying to tell my friends in China is to think about building. You have to look at the entire picture. So I think we should think about that because of all the raw materials and the carbon footprint of and all the concrete and steel and glass and everything else, and all the disruption and traffic and pollution involved with building construction, if you did it once every 100 years versus once every 25 or 30 years, it's a big difference. There are many things that we in the world can improve. The other thing is that China has lots of the right raw materials. They have great hydropower. They have great long-distance high-voltage transmission. They lead the world in both. They are less great in coordinating everything so all the pieces move so that you have lots of wind and solar, but you don't throw that energy away. Remember, if you have excess wind and solar, there's no place to put it. There's no energy storage. You dump it in the ground. And so they are building pumped hydro. That's lifting water from lower copper and it's more efficient than the chemical storage batteries for utilities. And so how do you coordinate the system? How do you do all these things becomes very important. And perhaps not enough has gone into that. So I think the world can share best practices and the technologies that enable you as you go to more solar and wind that you can use a very high fraction of it. But ultimately it depends on storage. How do you if you have excess solar and wind, how do you store it? So when you do need it, it would be available. But you do not want to throw it away. As you mentioned, China started to cut electricity this year. Actually, uh, this year, a lot of factories in China's manufacturing hubs are on electricity rationing. So it is a sign that China is willing to sacrifice economic growth a bit for uh, a transition into a greener economy, right? I agree. And it shows that the Chinese government really cares about this. I'm not sure the U.S. government was willing to say to a factory, you can only operate four days out of a week. I applaud that. It's very important. But I think you can also say, what do you have to do? Because as you go to more solar and more wind, it's gonna, the problems are going to get worse. It's not going to get better. It's also imperative that they work on how to store the energy to use it more efficiently so you don't have to turn off the factories and things. And that would be the ideal system. But it's clear um, that when China says they put factories on ration, it does matter. And uh, they're trying hard to burn less coal. Coal is terrible. Uh, going back to uh, countries could get together and say, you know, what do you learn in one country might be in part adaptable in another country. And, and so all, we're all in this together. We're just one planet. And just as we've learned from COVID, you can, you can try to isolate yourself, but what happens if you don't protect other countries and the thing mutates, it will come back. Now you can say, well, in that case, I'll just stay isolated from the entire world, but then the entire world suffers, each country's economy suffer, so in the end, the climate problem is like COVID times a thousand. We're all in it together. We have to have help each other find this solution because we're just one small planet. Coming up next, 
China and the U.S. are two significant players in the fight against climate change. Nonetheless, the relationship is strained. Which sector should be improved? No country has a monopoly on talent and brand. The sharing of that knowledge would be very beneficial around the world. And what's the path for China and the U.S.'s cooperation? The enemy is the climate. We have to work together. There's no choice. U.S. are the two most valuable players in this fight against climate change. What do you think about the cooperation between the two sides? The relationship is more testy. Are you worried about that? We're drifting into a Cold War mentality. That would be very bad for both countries in the world. The climate problem is huge, and and it needs the full cooperation. One of the things that's very important is that no country has a monopoly on talent and brains. You know, in the scientific literature, in basic research, you want to publish, and everybody around the world can read it and benefit from it. And they may do something that would inspire you later. And in this way, scientists around the world help each other, and they go up like this. It's very important that in basic research, in areas where you publish, that you continue to do this. The fundamental stuff that was behind a lot of the technologies in batteries. Canada research that was published. So you want to continue this open dialogue of this stuff. Eventually, a company or a country will say, "Okay, I I want to do this." Before that happens, you really have to be sharing all that information technology. And then finally, going back to let's say the electricity distribution and transmission systems, or the buildings in a country, the roads in a country. The trains in a country; these things are are built in that country, and so when you do that, each country can learn from each other and say, "Oh, this country is doing this in a good way. We want why to follow that to make a a better high voltage system, a better mass transit system, things like that." And so the sharing of that knowledge would be very beneficial around the world. But with climate change, we cannot. Let this happen. We have to work together. Cold War mentality is very dangerous. In your opinion, what can be done to bring this relationship back on track? I think you would ask both sides to earn the trust of the other side. It's just not rhetoric and things like or well wishes. We each side has to behave honorably. We have to do these things, and because if you don't, if you then go back to this cold war, I don't trust you. I, you know, you,、um, in the end, it's going to be bad for everybody. The United States is now erecting barriers. I'm terribly afraid. For、uh, Trump was president, and if he got reelected, they, if he had his way, we wouldn't have any more Chinese graduate students and postdocs. That would be tragic. For the world, especially for the United States, because <laughs>、um, the United States benefits from uh, immigrant uh, students. We have to figure out how, by behavior, to earn people's trust back. That's very important, and there have to be leaders that say, "No, no, 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 no. We have to tone this down. Don't get excited. If you're a politician and things aren't going well for you, it's an age-old thing that for centuries you start a conflict." And the people in the country unite behind you because there's an outside enemy. So you don't want to do that.
because the enemy right now is us, that we're changing the environment, we're harming the globe, we the huge threats to climate change and the future stability. You know, there's a saying that um, it might have been Ronald Reagan asked Gorbachev, and at that time there was still a Cold War mentality, and Reagan asked and said, if aliens, people from outer space, came and invaded Earth, would you come and fight together with us? Of course, the answer is yes. The enemy is the climate. If we don't fix this, it will get us. That's right. Well, it's a cooperation or mutual destruction. So let's don't imagine the worst. Under Biden administration, I assume the competition mainly defines the relationship. What do you think about the direction of the relationship under such definition, and what would be the impact on technological cooperation between the two sides? Any administration, whether it's the Chinese government or U.S. government, is not just a single mind, right? There's all sorts of internal debates and struggles, and people have different sides. And in the end, one has to try to part, chart a course on the long term in the best interests of both people. In the short term, you can get angry. You can do things that it, you can do this in your personal lives. You know that you know you can get angry, but in the long run, it's not going to do anyone any good. In the long run, this is no good. So I'm hoping that there are enough calm people in both governments to say we don't want to do this. We have to just tamp things down. We have to work together. There's no choice. And the best way to work together is. To trust each other, and it's for the common good. Thankfully, the dawn is giving us a sign. At the COP26 climate summit, China and U.S. unveiled a commitment to ramp up cooperation in tackling climate change, including reducing methane emissions, protecting forests, and phasing down coal. Both parties reaffirmed their firm commitment to working together to fulfill the Paris Agreement's 1.5 Celsius temperature target. As U.S. climate envoy John Kerry said. Every step matters right now, and we have a long journey ahead of us. Well, thank you so much for your insights, Professor Chu. We really appreciate it. And that's all for this edition of Biz Talk. I'm Guan Xing. Until next time, bye for now.